Well, as you can see, we're finishing out the chapter this morning of John chapter 19. And this is coming into building into the, the greatest moment that we will see in all of Scripture, which is the resurrection of Christ. But before we get there, we need to take the time to appreciate these verses that once again, like we talked about last week, are easily skimmable. It's easy to fly over the top of these verses because we so desperately want to get to the resurrection. But there is much to be gleaned from these passages. And I know that you saw as we read the names of people, particularly two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. What we're going to learn this morning about these two men is that people are messy and salvation is not mechanical. Uh, if you've been around at all, you've heard me quote many, many times from Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in the 1600s. And that Puritan, his own life, he has an autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And you can't make it even halfway through the book, and he's still not a Christian. It's his autobiography. He's just talking about his life, and he still is not a Christian. He has these moments where he thinks that he is, or he's pretending to be, but he's really not. And it just goes on and on and on. Eventually, like, man, I just want to see you become a Christian. Hear about the cool stuff you did afterwards. But he is so wrestling with his own conversion, and it's, it's messy. Now, some of us we know have Damascus Road-type conversions. You know what I reference when I say that? Acts chapter 9 where Paul was blinded by the Lord Jesus Christ during the middle of the day and is immediately converted. And he knows it, and he knows exactly when. Some of us have that. Many of us don't. But we know that all people are messy, so we never give up on people. We continue speaking the truth in love to those that we would so desperately long to see come to faith in Christ. We don't just stop. We don't give up. We don't quit. We don't say, well, we've shared enough, and then that's it. That's the mark of a cult. The Mormons will eventually stop coming to your house. If you argue with them enough, they will stop. They'll just put a black X. They'll be, they're done. We don't, we don't believe that they can be converted. That's the mark of a cult. The Muslims will do the same. No, you get what you deserve. We don't have that latitude as Christians, so we continue on. And we also must not demand a perfect repentance, as we will see and get into in this text so often what we want is, is that perfect, you heard the gospel message, you repented of any of your sins right there, and then immediately after that, it was just domino after domino after domino of sin falling. And it was, it was sequential, and it was mechanical, and it was predictable. Now that's not true for most all of us, though there are many that it is true for. But people are messy. What we do is we let time, time will tell the conversions validity. Uh, there's an old famous saying from an old preacher that time and truth walk hand in hand. What is true? If it's true now, it'll be true 10 years from now, and it'll be true 20 years from now. So time and truth walk hand in hand. We walk that the pilgrim path is long and difficult, and it has plenty of off-ramps. And we've seen, tragically, all of us have seen friends and family get off and leave. But there's often been plenty of times where questionable people at the beginning, as they start, they turn out to be faithful pilgrims, truly converted. We're going to be looking at this morning are two men of such character, Joseph and Nicodemus. It's going to show who they are in these verses. A cowardly inquirer 
and a secret disciple will become bold professors of Christ. At the cross and at the tomb. But what we can't let happen is let Joseph and Nicodemus steal the story. This is still Christ's story. And so what I want to have in the back of your brains the whole time that we're going through this is this question, is Christ always king? This is the moment where it could look like he is truly defeated, but is he king? When his lifeless corpse flopped over the shoulder of Joseph when he pulled him from the cross, was he king? And when he and Nicodemus wrap up his corpse and put it into a rock cave, was he king? Was he king? Let's think through. Was he worthy of praise and honor and submission as king? These two men are going to help us understand that as we also see them in their lives. So we begin with Joseph of Arimathea. He's the first one mentioned in verse 38. What I want to do is, uh, is give you a little bit of background on him. We're not going to go to all of these verses, but you, they're easy to find. Uh, as, it, as it explains Joseph of Arimathea, he is only mentioned in this portion of the story of Christ in all four Gospels. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament ever again or ever before by name. Matthew 27, 57 says that he was rich. So he's a wealthy, he's a man of means. He either has family money or he has some kind of uh, business that he runs. This is untypical or atypical for followers of Christ, right? Most of them are poor. And we remember Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, right? That man is said, I, it's not worth it for me to give up wealth to love you more than wealth. So he, he leaves and abandons. But Nicodemus, we're gonna see a different story. Mark 15, 43 says that he was respected. He uses that word respected. So Joseph of Arimathea is not a fringe personality. He's not some kind of guy on the edge who's kind of reluctantly or regrettably a part of the, the Sanhedrin we'll see in a minute. No, he's on there and he's respected. He's not a, an, an oddball. He's the real deal in their, in their uh, culture. Luke 23, 50 says that he was good and righteous. Good and righteous. Now you see, when we hear that, many times what we think is those are just repetitive. You're just saying the same thing twice for emphasis. But good and righteous are different things in the New Testament. Righteous means that you keep the law. Good means you love your neighbor above the law. Not just that you don't steal, but you give generously. And if you're gonna truly love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus says is the second greatest commandment, then I don't just not steal from my body, I feed it. I don't just not sin against my body, I do positive things to it. So Joseph of Arimathea is described as this, good and righteous. Matthew 27, 57, John 19, 38 describes him as a disciple of Jesus. Somewhere along the line, he became a follower, a learner, an imitator. At some point, though he had not been open about it until now, what this seems to be is his coming out party. This seems to be like that's what we're experiencing right here. His fear of man seems to have died with Jesus. That's a very real issue in his day was the fear of man. Now, if you remember back in John 7, verse 13, in that, that brief period, that, that quick period that we looked at, 
Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Everybody's interested, but nobody's claiming him because they fear the Jews. And remember the man born blind in John chapter 9, the whole chapter's about him. What's his parents' perspective? 9.22. His parents said these things, the blind man's parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And that just doesn't mean that you got to go find a new church. That means you are unwelcome in every church. And you can't trade in business in the marketplace. You lose everything. And then this is where we get a hint of maybe John's talking about Joseph of Arimathea in John 12, 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Could be Joseph of Arimathea there. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then here's John's reason. John is not kind to these people. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There was a lot to lose for associating with Jesus then. And as a side note, there still is a lot to lose for rightly and fully associating with Christ. But apparently Joseph was done fearing men. He was no longer deterred by the cost. And as a Sanhedrin member that Mark and Luke both point out, he's not only a Sanhedrin member, but they say, Mark or Luke says, that he didn't agree with the actions of the council. He didn't consent to their wicked plan. So he is either not there when they're taking the vote or he's abstaining from the vote or something. But it's known and in the minutes of the meetings that Joseph did not go along with this execution uh, kangaroo court for Jesus. And then lastly, he's described Luke 27, 51 and Mark 15, 43 as one who is looking for the kingdom of God. Now that's significant, looking for the kingdom of God means he's waiting for it, he's searching for it. That's what he's truly after. See, he's an, an example of an Old Testament faithful Jew who's been looking for the Messiah and that's all he's after. He's not after prestige, even though he's rich, he's not after his wealth. He's looking for the real, true consummation of the kingdom of God through his Messiah. That's what he's searching for. Now, this is at the end of Jesus's life and we find a man like this. Can you remember somebody at the beginning of Jesus's life who was described like this? When he was eight days old, who was he brought to? Simeon and Anna. Do you remember how Luke describes them? Luke 2. Luke 2, 25, now there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting or looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And then Anna, in verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she, Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The beginning and the ending of his life, he's marked by people. There, God still has people. Even in a completely apostate nation, God has people looking for the kingdom. And that's Joseph of Arimathea. But what is this day? You look at verse 38, and it says that he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. He approaches Pilate boldly. If you remember, we've been stretching out this one day for a lot of weeks. 
maybe like a month and a half. We've been on one day of time. This is happening. Joseph is doing this in the afternoon of the same day when Pilate was being harangued and yelled at and argued with by all of his colleagues, Joseph's colleagues, earlier that same morning. Do you think that Pilate is sick of seeing Pharisees? That's what Joseph is. Is he sick of seeing these authorities? And he's, is he up to here? He has soldiers at his beck and call. He just executed somebody that he proclaimed to be innocent. He told everybody, this man is not guilty, but I'll go ahead and kill him anyways. So if Joseph goes to him and Pilate's done and having a horrible rest of his day, and he just, that was the last straw, he could be killed. So he boldly, he's described as boldly going to Pilate in the Synoptic Gospels. He has the courage to walk in to the governor's palace and guess what? Yeah, I got one more request for you to do for me about this homeless, unemployed, Jewish nobody. I got one more thing that I want you to do for me. That's, that's boldness. And then what does he do? Takes the body of Jesus, verse 40, bound it, wrapped it in linen cloths with spices, the burial custom of the Jews, that Jesus' body was worthy to Joseph of the highest honor, respect for the, the body as made in the image of God. And he's totally unconcerned about becoming ceremonially unclean by touching this body. Because Numbers 19.11 says, whoever touches the body of any person shall be unclean seven days. And what happens tomorrow? Tomorrow is the Sabbath and it's a high day. Remember we saw last week? It's a high day, the second Paschal day in the Feast of Passover, and it's a Sabbath. It's like layer upon layer of importance. Joseph says, I don't care. This Jesus is who he says he was. So I'll be ceremonially unclean for that. He embraces who Christ is, and then he puts him in his personal tomb. See, John doesn't record that, but we have four Gospels. The others record that this is Joseph's tomb, probably set aside for him. And it wasn't a natural cave. He paid people to carve a hole out of a rock and make, make uh, beds in there, in a sense, slabs in there for he to be laid on it, probably family members. This is his personal tomb. And you know what that does? That fulfills yet another Old Testament messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 9, And they made his, the Savior's, grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, a tomb in which no man had yet been laid. It's a rich man's, but it's also what Matthew Henry calls a virgin tomb. And he says it like this, he that was born from a virgin womb must also arise from a virgin tomb that no one had ever been in. So what can we conclude here quickly about Joseph? Joseph openly claims Christ as Savior by claiming his body. He's well-known in Jerusalem, and he's on the Sanhedrin, and he doesn't care anymore what he will be thought of. He's done being a secret disciple. He's willing to be publicly connected with Christ because the Jews are going to find out, right? There's no way they can't because we know that on Saturday morning, they go to Pilate and say, hey, we just wanted you to know that this crazy guy that's dead now talked about raising again, and we think his disciples might steal his body, so can we put a guard there? Where are you going to put the guard? Oh, it's at Joseph's tomb. It's his. 
So they all know where it is and they all know whose it is and they know how his body got there. And he's unafraid and he's unashamed. Joseph's repentance of this previous lifestyle and discipleship was not perfect. We see that. We see that his conversion was not perfect because all during the life of Christ, he stayed secret. We don't even know his name until now, and that's on purpose, recording in the scripture. But no true disciple of Christ will be closeted for long. None. Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and they follow him, and they all profess him. They all profess him, publicly identify with him. Matthew 10, 32 through 33, this is Jesus speaking. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, as Joseph just did, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is not that there's some uh, self-destruct button on your salvation, but what it proves to always have been true about you if you will never claim Christ outwardly, that you never had him inwardly. So if you live a life of denial of Christ before people, it proves that you never had Christ. And Jesus says, I'll deny you. There are no secret saints, no lifelong secret saints. We can see Joseph can live in sin for a while, but he can't do it forever. No real saint can do that. Joseph's soul to now claim Christ of all times. I mean, it's, it's over, right? He, he's dead. But that's the moment that jolts him to claim Christ publicly. It wasn't his miracles, his messages, or his holy life. It was his death. This is how Spurgeon described it better than I can. He said, is it not a remarkable thing that all the life of Christ did not draw out an open avowal from this man. Our Lord's miracles, his marvelous discourses, his poverty and self-renunciation, his glorious life of holiness and benevolence, all may have helped to build up Joseph in his secret faith, but it did not suffice to develop in him a bold avowal of faith. The shameful death of the cross had greater power over Joseph than all the beauty of Christ's life. Now let us see, you timid, backwards ones, whether the cross will not have the same influence over you today. I believe it will if you carefully study it. Those are Spurgeon's words, not mine. But I agree with them. It was all of the things that he could have seen. He, he saw the miracles. He knew about it. Everybody knew about him. And he still, that doesn't draw him out. But his shameful, humiliating, public embarrassment of a death, Nick, Joseph says, I'm, I'm there. I'm here now. Even though he, he has no real concept of the resurrection. We'll get to that in just a minute. But there's another friend that's with him, Nicodemus. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. We remember Nicodemus, don't we? Chapter three, the Pharisee, the ruler of the Jews in John 3, 1. He has some reverence for Jesus in John 3, 2. He calls him a teacher, he calls him rabbi. He acknowledges his miracles and he says that God must be with you. He's gotta be somewhere near and around you. But he's ashamed to be seen with Jesus because he comes at night alone, doesn't wanna be found out. 
And he recoils at Jesus' blunt teaching. Remember in John 3, when Jesus says, you must be born again, and he asks, he asks sarcastically, what am I supposed to do, jump back inside my mom? And he knows that's not what he's talking about, but instead he's being dismissive. But Jesus says, you're supposed to be the teacher of Israel, and you don't know this? So he has a high position. You could call it the theologian in residence of Jerusalem. But then later we saw in John 7, if you remember all the way back there, 50 through 52, Nicodemus sticks up for Jesus because they're about, they're, they're full on conspiring, we've got to kill this guy. And Nicodemus says, doesn't our law not allow for this? That somebody should be charged and tried and then put to death without any kind of investigation? And they go, what are you from Galilee too? Are you his disciple too? So he's, he stood up a little bit there. We don't hear anything about him again until chapter 19, and we see his actions on this day. He accompanies Joseph. Obviously, these two closeted disciples found each other. Somehow, they found each other. Perhaps Joseph approached him after he heard Nicodemus stand up to the whole Sanhedrin and say, hey, we're not even following the Bible about this, guys. And maybe that drew them together as friends, and so then now Nick tags along with Joseph the more wealthy and prominent Joseph, and he's unashamed to be associated now. Have we seen brothers encouraging brothers in Christ, sisters encouraging sisters in Christ, sisters and brothers encouraging each other? That's why we read Numbers 13. Because when, earlier this morning, because when the, the spies come back, the 10 say, yeah, it's awesome, but we can't do it. And Caleb says, no, he jumps up on a stump and he's like, no, we must go in. And then they say, no, we must not go in. And then they weep and then they wail and they get the whole people group, the whole nation to say, we should just go back to Egypt. And then Caleb and Joshua both jump up and say, we've got to go now and we can't fear people. We can fear no man because God is with us meaning we fear God way more than we fear these giants. Yeah, we do look like grasshoppers next to them, but what do they look like next to God? You see now Joseph and Nicodemus are building off of each other and Nicodemus, he's gonna provide this expensive ointment, spend a bunch of money and fill up a cart, 75 pounds of it to bring it to anoint Jesus, this myrrh. Do you remember? Uh, at his birth, same thing is brought. And then that, that child was wrapped in cloths and now we have myrrh and a wrapping again at the end. This myrrh is a fragment, it's kind of a gummy resin and you mix it with this ground up wood, probably sandalwood or this powder from sandalwood. And, it, and the Jews don't embalm, that's not their customs. You know, embalming in Egyptians, if you get grossed out, just tune out. They just pull out your brains and your entrails and then they fill it with, uh, chemicals to preserve your body. Jews don't do that. They left it all whole, but this myrrh was supposed to, to suppress the, uh, the, the decay odor. And then you wrap that and you put layers of linen over that so that the, the, the stench is not intolerable. Because you're putting this in a tomb, you're not putting it in the ground, and you're gonna go in and out there with your family. So that, this is their process. And it was supposed to dignify the body. And so Nicodemus is there and he assists with the burial, the wrapping. 
the transporting the body, the grunt work at the tomb. Think about all the logistics of carrying the body in, of rolling the stone, of placing the body there, preparing. I mean, this is a lot of work. He's also becoming ceremonially unclean, and he doesn't care. Now, what can we conclude about Nicodemus? It's a safe assumption that Nicodemus and Joseph both regretted their cowardice while Jesus was alive. And why else would they be so eager for his body? He's gone now. Now you want to identify? I mean, now you could just kind of get away with it because Jesus isn't even alive to see you deny him based on their understanding of who he is. And it looks as if right now Jesus' team has lost. They have nothing to gain and everything to lose by doing this, at least on a human side. Their council positions could be in jeopardy for this on the Sanhedrin, this elite group of 70 men who rule over as judges, as juries, as theologians, as lawyers. I mean, it's just kind of this all-inclusive role, highly, highly respected. And for what? The death of a heretic? The dead body of a heretic? You're risking so much. The whole time Jesus was alive, they didn't claim him, but they will claim him now. They will honor him and they will associate with him now. They don't fully understand the resurrection. We know that because even the disciples don't and they were hearing it from Jesus' mouth frequently. But it doesn't matter. They believe him and now they finally don't care who knows. Nicodemus understands the new birth now, do you think? That Jesus was explaining to him that long night Back in John 3, he understands it now because he's experienced it now. He doesn't care about the cost anymore. He will give it all away to follow Christ, to have Christ. And before we turn to Christ, we need to turn to ourselves. Does it not seem as if right now we are in a similar position as Nicodemus and Joseph? I mean, where is Jesus? He's not physically walking around with us. He doesn't seem to be any, any power today if you're just going to talk to any random person on the street. Christian ideals and principles are despised today. What we're doing right now is group hate speech, according to everybody online. Uh, and there seem to be, right now, also no consequences for mocking or rebelling against Christ. It seems to be that there is no judgment. There is no punishment. There is nothing coming for the deniers of Christ because he's not here. The same could be said on this day about Joseph and Nicodemus. But when we look at a passage like 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, our minds can be helped. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come. In the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Meaning Jesus's. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is your Jesus? 2,000 years and he hadn't come back. Where is he? This is obviously not going to happen. Just like your grandparents died and their grandparents died and their everything's continuing on just like it always has. Nothing has changed. Nothing is different. You believe in a fantasy. There is no judgment. There's no, no consequences. Your, your religious mascot is gone and defeated, just like all the rest, just like Muhammad, just like Buddha. 
See, there is no end. There's no shame in the blasphemous mocking of Christ in our day. And certainly his bride, the church, is mocked relentlessly. It seems that media on whatever size screen they can get on just is mocking and blaspheming Christ. 24 hours a day. And who's gotten struck by lightning yet? Who's been struck dead yet? And since we live between the advents, I mean, Christ's first coming and then the awaited second coming, our circumstances really do mirror that of Joseph and Nicodemus. He's gone. He's dead. Will we claim Christ today? Will we claim Christ today when it seems like we have nothing to gain, but yet everything to lose, just like Nicodemus and Joseph? Do we care what that association will cost us with the culture? Do we fear them? Are you done caring what pagans think of you because of your claim to Christ? Will you line your life up with your belief in Christ's imminent return? Because Jesus told his disciples that he would rise again, and he told us that he will return, clearly. Matthew 24, he gives a parable in verse 44 through 51. Therefore, Jesus is speaking, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You won't expect it. So when you're like, I'm going to expect what I don't expect. You don't expect that. You're not going to expect it, period. So try, try to figure it out. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, Jesus says, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, he's not coming back, it's going to take him forever, or he's not coming at all, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have to believe against the culture that says nothing is any different. And Jesus is not coming back. If he was ever even here, he's certainly not coming back. We're told directly the opposite. But we believe and we feel the tension. Like, I just, I don't know. I mean, I see evil happening. And there doesn't seem to be any consequences. It seems like the most crooked people make the most money. And it seems like the most evil people always rise up to powers of position of influence. Well, we're warned of that too. And explain that to us, Ecclesiastes 8, 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of men is fully set to do evil. We see that. I didn't get in trouble for breaking that commandment, participating in that sin, blasting this immorality out in public. So I'm going to keep doing it. Nothing happened. I didn't get caught. Nothing happened. I'm going to keep doing it. But then it says, verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life seemingly, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him and it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. See, we doubt God's sovereignty, even his existence, when we see evil run rampant among us and go unpunished. It may look like 
God is powerless or dead, similar to Joseph and Nicodemus with Christ. But don't be deceived by what you think is slowness that's grinding to a halt. God's promises are being fulfilled so slowly that they just won't be. Now we go back to 2 Peter 3 again, verses 8 and following. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Not talking about creation, talking about the end of everything. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. This is your Bible. This is all of our Bible says this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Be like Joseph and Nicodemus and claim Christ now. Now, when it looks like there is no benefit, there is no gain, it's no different than anybody else, claim Christ now, right now. And even when it seems like it's a lost cause, believing that everything in the universe is always going according to God's eternal plan, always. Long for the new heavens and new earth like Peter just admonished us to do. Long for the new heavens and new earth. And if we're longing for a new heavens and a new earth, then we understand our very tentative and temporary relationship with this heavens and this earth. And we don't seek to blend in like camouflage with it because we're instructed in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This passage is not about marriage, though it does apply. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's an idol that represents Satan in uh, the Corinthian context. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, and I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate, from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you so that you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the almighty Lord. If you're doing everything you can to blend in with the culture, you must answer this question. What makes you think they will treat you more kindly than they treated Jesus when they find out that you're with him? Don't befriend the world because you're afraid of it. Fear God and own the name of his son now. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility or enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whose enemy would you rather be? God's or the world's? 
It must be one or the other. Nicodemus and Joseph had to decide that. Whose enemy would we rather be? But then you think, well, what about our witness to the world? I'm so glad you asked. And I'm so glad you care about that. Let's think about this. Were, were Nicodemus and Joseph better witnesses before this day or after? Were they more useful for the gospel when nobody knew they believed it? Or were they more useful for the gospel when they boldly identified with the, the embodiment of it in the body of Christ? Think of the conversations that now happen. Wait a minute. You guys, you took the body off the cross? Wait, that's in your tomb? We're sending soldiers to guard your family tomb that you paid for? Why, were you, why would you do that? Why are you a part of this? And whether or not this, the, the conversation has led to conversions, they had them now. We will identify with Christ. We will be seen with him. He is everything that he claimed to be. They are now, these two men are now of great gospel usefulness for the good of men's souls. Opposed to being entirely impotent due to their secrecy before. So if you're waiting because you got to build up your resume, if you're waiting because I've done, I, I, I got to just clean some things up before I start identifying with Christ, don't. If you wait till you're ready, you'll never come. Come now. Come now. Joseph and Nicodemus had so much to repent of, and they didn't wait until Sunday. They said, on Friday, we're going to go deal with this. On Friday, we're going to go and take this body off the cross and be identified publicly with it. Repent now and receive grace now because the answer to the question of what we've had in the back of our minds is Christ is always king. He was king in the tomb. Regardless of what death was saying, regardless of what biology and experience was saying, he was king in that tomb. That lifeless corpse was king. Calvin said his death has more quickening than his life because these men, while he's alive, stay hidden. But when he dies, they come out. That's the power of a king. He's king now, regardless of what media says, politicians say, your neighbors and your family and friends say, he's king now, on the throne now, reigning now, though we see him not with our eyes. We see him by faith and he will be king eternally, unassailably king. Is he your king? Is he the king that you bow down to, that you follow, regardless of what any other false usurpers of the throne might say or try to command you to do? See, Nicodemus and Joseph, they made it clear finally that he was their king without even understanding the resurrection, how much more should we on this side of the resurrection? And how, how grateful, we don't hear about it after this, but how grateful, how humbled must they have been when they found out he is risen. When Joseph goes back to his family tomb that he bought and it's empty, I put the body in here and it's empty. Have, have you ever had such great, buyer's assurance, this was the right thing. Praise God. And then, and then such remorse over the sinful hiding that he had done, but then knowing that he's forgiven. 
So he's weeping these tears of, of regret, but they're overwhelmed by the tears of gratitude for what Christ had done as the king. I think it's interesting here as we close that at this moment, this little tiny paragraph before we get to the resurrection, who, who's not there asking for the body? Mary, the disciples, the women that were at the cross, these other followers, and maybe they have reasons. Maybe they're intimidated or too grieved. But these two men, they came to Pilate. And if they hadn't, what would have happened to Jesus' body? One of two things is where theologians surmise. There's this pile outside of the city of Jerusalem. that was just the community burn pile. It's where you took your trash and your debris and your leftovers. That's where the word Gehenna comes from. It was just always burning always on fire because you, this is a big city. People are taking their trash out there. It's just a dump and then you don't bury it, you burn it. So they would just throw oftentimes these unnamed and certainly Gentile criminals into that pile. Maybe that's where Jesus's body ends up. Or maybe he gets a little bit more respect and he just gets buried in a mass grave for criminals. But that's not what God intended. He would not allow for that. Today was the day that he determined that these two men would come from out of the dark into the light that these two men would be despising the world's shame and publicly claim Christ. And is today that day for you? What areas of your life are you living as a secret disciple? What friends or family members or coworkers or acquaintances don't know that you're a Christian and you know that they don't know? How long are you going to be content with that? When will you fly the flag of Christ? I'm not saying that you have to host a revival in the Little League bleachers. But will you not deny Christ? Will you say, I am with him? And I don't care what it costs me. Joseph and Nicodemus preached to no one that day. But everybody knew who they were with. When will those people know the truth about you? And if we have to ask that question for too long, we have to ask this, is it the truth about you? And if it's not the truth about you, make it true today. Uh, despise the shame, the, the, the hatred that could come upon you and claim Christ today. He's worth it because he does break out of this tomb. We will get there. We are at Friday now, but Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming, and you want to be there with that. Friend, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by openly claiming Christ. Even if you know that you are a Christian and you, you're boldly here, but you know that there's this one friend or this one group of coworkers or this softball team that I play on or, or what, that I just, I just kind of subdue it, just be bold and just come out. Just talk about church. Just talk about the glories of the salvation, your assurance of heaven. Talk about your fascination with Christ and all that he is and all that he's done. How is that any different than talking about your favorite athlete? You'll tell everybody, nobody cares about your favorite athlete but you. And you'll tell everybody about it. Nobody cares about your favorite book but you. You'll tell everybody about it. So let's not be ashamed of this book and our hero the one and only true Savior. He promised to be with you and to strengthen you forever. You will know his love, his mercy, his grace, and power to previously unforeseen measures when you openly claim him.
That, yes. If we forget the scene at hand, though, here's how we wrap up. Though Christ is dead, it won't be for long. This is a very real reality. He is dead, actually dead. We'll talk more about that in the resurrection. Friday is dark and defeating. You have these men lamenting their failure to identify before him, but now they publicly identify. You have nobody else there wanting his body, and you have nobody else there burying his body. It's dark, but Sunday is coming. Soon that dark cavern will beam with the light of resurrection and the messengers who herald it. This is how Matthew Henry the Puritan summarized this, and I can't say it better than him, so I'm going to read it and then we'll pray. He says this, Thus, without pomp or solemnity is the body of Jesus laid in the cold and silent grave. Here lies our surety under arrest for our debts, so that if he be released, his discharge will be ours. Here is the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness set for a while to rise again in greater glory and set no more. Here lies a seeming captive to death, but a real conqueror over death. For here lies death itself slain and the grave conquered. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory. Father, we thank you that you have given us the victory through what looked like a defeat of your son. May we always embrace that. May we embrace that afresh today. May we, may we repent of our cowardice to identify as your people, of being ashamed for being known as one of your redeemed, as justifying it by thinking that what we're doing is just earning us the right to be heard or we're building a bridge. Father, we, we don't have to be the confrontational preacher. You've gifted us in all different ways, but we must be open professors. People must know that about us. So forgive us for the times when we have feared men and had no fear and no reverence for you. We'd rather have them approve of us. And we don't really care if you approve of those actions at that time. Forgive us of that. And we thank you that we can stand forgiven, that we have an assurance of pardon in Christ as we're seeing happening right now, that he is sitting in the grave as the antitype to Jonah of old, three days in the fish, Jesus will be three days in the tomb and he will come out and offer life abundantly, not just to one city like Nineveh, but to all who call upon his name. So our hope is there. Our confidence is there. We rest there. And as we sit in this uh, less than sunshiny moment in the, in the timeline of redemptive history, may we really embrace it for all that it is. May we see our kindred brothers Nicodemus and Joseph. May we see those that we tend to be like a lot, the disciples who ran, the women who were at the cross but don't want to be near the, the tomb at the time. And may we also look forward to the day coming when they all come sprinting to an empty hole in the ground. We thank you that our hope is there, that we have beyond Friday
and we have Sunday and we accordingly worship every single first day of the week and we call it your day because that is the day that you conquered sin and death forever and forgave the sins of all your redeemed. You take it away as the Lamb of God. We're grateful for this morning and we ask that you be pleased by our worship. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.